God good? So I understand there was a truck wreck over here. Kept a lot of you from church, right? At first, I was freaked out. I walked out here, and we see 10 people. Good to see all of you tonight. God is good. You know, the Word of God is good no matter where you land. The Word of God is good. No matter where you land in it, it's always good. And tonight, we're going to do a little more than half of the second chapter of Titus. And I would encourage you, read ahead. I know some of you are going through the Bible in a year with me, but Titus is very brief. And um, three chapters, you know, about 16, 15 verses a chapter. So it's easy to do and see what God says to you about it before I come up here and teach on it. Amen? Amen. So tonight we're going to talk about the need for exercise in the local church, and I don't mean physical. But that's just what I'm calling it because it's going to be telling us uh, how to exercise our character to become more godly. How many of you would love to be more godly? How many of you know the Lord's going to have to do that? Amen? All right, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. And we pray that you will open to us the book of Titus and feed us, Lord, out of the good word of God. Speak to our hearts and give us revelation, Lord, and we thank you for it. In the mighty name of Jesus, can you breathe a prayer, dear church, and just say, Lord, speak to me and renew my mind and build my faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him more exercise. More exercise. Didn't Paul say, he said, bodily exercise profits a little bit, but godliness profits to all things. But that bodily exercise does profit a little bit. Now, last time we saw in the second half of chapter 1, if you were here, how Paul singles out false teachers and describes certain characteristics about them. What I like about Paul is he was not politically correct. He was very politically incorrect because he would name names. Demas has forsaken me. Um, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm. Watch out for him. He wrote that, didn't he? Everybody in Asia forsook me. He said he named names in in a negative light and he named names way more names in a positive light. Now, um, he said that false teachers had certain characteristics. He named a few. They are insubordinate. They are idle talkers spewing out nonsense. They overthrow and destroy entire households. He closes out the chapter 1 saying that though they profess to know God, they deny him in the way that they live. A lot of people in church that way these days, all over America and the world. People who say that they know God, but their lifestyles don't testify to that at all. Now, in chapter 2, Paul is going to turn his attention to local church fellowship, and he addresses four types of people. Get this. He talks about, and two, older men. I'm so glad he didn't say old men. He said older men. When I started out in the ministry, I was always having to remind myself of the verse where it says, um, let no man despise your youth, because I was very young when I started. Now I'm on the other side of that. But I'm an older man now. So, and you ladies need to be glad he didn't say old women. He said older women. And then young men, and then, of all things, employees. So he's really covering the gamut here. We're going to get through the first three. I'm not going to be able to go into employees tonight, um, but we're going to get most of it done. So first he begins with one of his favorite topics before he talks about, and two, any of those three, older men, older women, and then young men. He's going to talk about sound doctrine. He says in verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Now this is a constant mantra with Paul. He's always talking about sound doctrine. And remember, I told you last week, that doesn't sound a need, dry, uh, need to sound dry and stale. But sound doctrine just means healthy, balanced teaching. That's all it means. Healthy, balanced teaching. Sound means healthy. In another let- letter to another son of the faith, Paul told Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, 
rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, if you can rightly divide it, you can wrongly divide it. So rightly dividing the word of truth. It's, the, the, the language here is very interesting. Because the phrase rightly dividing comes from a single Greek word meaning to cut a straight path. It was used in New Testament times as a road building term. The idea was to cut a roadway in a straight manner so that people who travel over that road can arrive at their destination directly without deviation. And that's the idea behind sound teaching or healthy teaching. It leads people in a straight path to the destination of Christian character and godly living without deviating down any other path. And Paul was huge on this. He, you know, he was always talking about you've got to be raised on sound teaching, healthy teaching, balanced teaching. He was always telling the pastors and the elders, teach soundly, teach balanced, sound doctrine this, sound doctrine that. He was always talking about healthy teaching. It matters. It really matters. Because healthy teaching produces healthy Christian living, healthy character, godly character, cutting that straight path. Now, since Christian character and behavior always accompany balanced teaching, he next addresses the spiritual character that ought to be evident in older men who have been under such teaching. So every older man in here, I would ask for a raise of hands, but everybody would lie. But older men now, here we go. And I don't know what the age break here would be in the mind of Paul. Older men, I don't know. I think it depends on how old you are as to what you would call older. <laughs> Amen. I think somebody 80 is an older man. Somebody in their 60s, nah, 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 still young. Right? All right. But here's for the older men. Verse 2. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. So the older men here were to take the lead in Christian living and behavior, beginning with sober. This literally means free from intoxication. Now, I've often said, if you come here much at all, that alcohol on the whole, I, I personally, my personal conviction is alcohol is not wise. The Bible stresses being filled with the Spirit. To me, uh, any Christian ought to be striving to learn how to walk full of the Spirit instead of partaking of spirits. While it does not say drinking moderately is forbidden, and it doesn't say that, and I can't tell you that drinking moderately is forbidden, but I've been around a while, and I've noticed a lot of things. And I've dealt with a lot of people. And too often, one thing leads to another, and it becomes a deadly habit. Or it can lead to bad judgment and regrettable mistakes. Truth be known, there's probably people in here tonight who could point to a time in your life where you wish you hadn't drank because of the decisions you made. Decisions you wouldn't have ever made without it. Things you said, places you went, things you did, that alcohol helped you do. Because it lowers God-given restraint. It, it does. It, it lowers God-given restraint. Now, I'm going to leave that alone and go to the next one. He says older men ought to be reverent. Reverent means serious, dignified. Older men have lived long enough to live life's sorrows as well as joys. They've learned tough lessons that younger people need to learn from. And the book of Ecclesiastes is a great example Here's an older King Solomon who has really messed up. He's departed from God. The women that he hooked up with uh, led him into idolatry. He went places, did things that he never dreamed as a young king he would ever do. But the, young, or the women led him astray. They were heathen women, pagan women, idolatrous women. And, and there's almost no story in the Bible that better illustrates the danger of wrong kind of relationships than Solomon. Because Solomon totally lost his walk with God. And yet, at the end of his life now, he's, he's very grave and very serious. And he's offering hard-earned advice in the book of Ecclesiastes. Then, older men ought to be temperate. And that means right-minded, wise, 
and discreet. The Bible says, for instance, a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. But the simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. Listen, one thing that you get with older men is experience that if you listen to them, you won't have to experience the same things. As far as the mistakes they made, some of the tough decisions they made and have regretted and have learned from. And one thing older men have learned is they can spot a trap a mile away, they foresee the danger, and they take precautions. They hide themselves. But the simpleton just keeps right on going, whistling, and doesn't catch the trap and falls right in. So we need older men who are wise and discreet and can teach younger men. Now, sound in the faith. Older men should be sound in the faith. In the original Greek, it reads, sound in the faith, sound in the faith. The verse we read just said sound in faith. But the Greek puts the article there, the, sound in the faith. Paul is pointing out that the older men need to be sound in the one true faith. Now, y'all catch this with me. Sound in the one true faith. We're living in a culture that teaches plurality. And what I mean by that is this. That any old way will do to God as long as you're sincere. If you mean well and really do your best, God sees that. And God will see to it that you get into heaven. But that's not the way that God looks at things at all. God sent his only begotten son. He sent one way. It is very narrow. It is very straightened. It is very tight. There is only one door, not 20 options. There's one door. And if you don't walk through that one door, you will remain lost in your sins. So Paul says to Titus to tell the older men that they need to be healthy. Remember the word sound? Healthy. Healthy in their faith. And the only healthy faith is faith that is put in the one true faith. The faith in God's only son and what he taught. Not just getting to heaven, but how did Jesus tell us to live? I'm amazed. We're looking at a real aberration in churches these days. And it's people who say, I know God, I know Christ, he's my Savior. But when you look at their values and the way they live, you realize that the Word of God is not forming and shaping their values and their ethics and their morals. But Jesus didn't just come to get us to heaven. He came to bring a little bit of heaven to us. And you just take Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That covers almost all aspects of life and living. So we're not just to get our ticket to ride when the rapture comes. We are to take the Bible and allow the Bible to shape our value system so that we value what he values. We honor what he honors. We extol what he extols, and we shun what he shuns. Jude uses the same wording when he encourages Christians, earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. The faith. Everybody say with me, there's only one faith. Come on, everybody. Buddhism won't get you there. Islam won't get you to heaven. Hare Krishna won't get you to heaven. I mean, finding your own way isn't going to get you to heaven. Hugging a tree is not going to get you to heaven. There's only one way. There's only one way to connect to God and God to connect to you and for you to have the love of God poured out in your hearts by the Holy Ghost given to us, and that is by way of Jesus Christ. And we don't ever need to be ashamed of that, for it is the power of God to salvation to everybody who believes. So say with me, sound in faith. And then older men ought to be sound in love. Now notice Paul mentions sound doctrine, sound faith, and sound love. And all of them are to be healthy. We can put it this way. We are to have healthy faith, healthy love, and healthy doctrine. So here we are now, healthy faith. In the original Greek it reads sound, I'm sorry, I'm sound love. I already did faith. Sound in love. Now, he uses the word agape here, the highest form of love that manifests itself. Here's what agape does. Agape does not function based on feelings. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I was raised on Top 40 radio. And every hit had to do with feeling love. Dizzy, I'm so dizzy, my head is spinning. Like a whirlpool, it never ends. No, I just really dated myself there. Do you know that the, the vast majority of hit songs have to do with love? And almost all of them have to do with feeling a feeling. And when you feel that feeling, you're in love. And here's the bad side. When you lose that feeling, you lose the love and you break the relationship off. But Christian love is not based on a feeling. God's love is not based on a feeling. Agape is a matter of the will. Now, you don't have to like everybody, but you know what? You can love everybody. How many of you can say, there's somebody in my life I don't like? No, don't raise your hand. And don't look next to you either. But we all have people that we don't naturally have chemistry with. But you don't have to like somebody to love them. Can I say that again? You don't have to like somebody to love them. You can love anybody. Because agape is a matter of the will. No matter the conditions, no matter the circumstances, agape functions on will. The Bible tells us that God is agape. God is love. And spiritual maturity is marked by this kind of unselfish, undying love. Spiritually mature people have learned, I can make a choice to love. I can make a choice to love. And once I choose to love somebody, then God will empower me by his spirit to do what he's commanded me to do. He gave us one commandment, love one another as I have loved you. That's not always easy to do. But if he told us to do it, then once we choose to love, he's going to grace us to do it. It is God who works in you, both to will and then to do of his good pleasure. And that includes love. So he says to the older men, I want you to have healthy love, healthy faith, healthy teaching. And then older men, patience. Now that means patient endurance. It's the kind of patience grown in the seedbed of trials. How do we learn patience? When it's tested. How do we learn patience? When we've got to be patient. That's the only way you're ever going to learn it. How many of you have ever wished, like me, patience was a gift? And it was just dropped on you. And all of a sudden, you're just patient. Man, you're patient all the time. You're patient on I-35. You're patient at work. You're patient at home. You're just steady, eddy, patient all the time. But that's not the way we get patient. Gifts are sown. Fruit is grown. And patience is a fruit. Young people want things now. But older men and women of God have learned the importance of learning to wait on God. And they can teach the younger people these valuable lessons. Not that they'll always listen. More times than not, they don't believe you until they go find out themselves. If you act in impatience, you usually get into trouble. Haste really does make waste. Next, Paul turns his attention to the older Christian women with another list of desirable character qualities resulting from healthy teaching. Chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Listen to this list, older ladies. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine. Boy, there he goes again with that wine. That must have been, been a drinking bunch there on Crete, right? The Isle of Crete, they must have been a drinking bunch. So he says, not given to much wine. Teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women. Look here, older ladies. He's telling you that there's a calling on your life, and that is to focus on the younger women and teach them. Admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, uh uh-oh, Gloria Steinem, don't listen to me tonight, because that is not a feminist word. Homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. Wow, we're going to get into trouble here tonight. That the word of God may not be what? Blaspheme. So let me deal with these quickly, reverent in behavior. This refers to the way a woman carries herself, her deportment, her demeanor. It points to the way um, a godly woman walks and talks, goes into a room, 
is viewed by others. The King James says, as becometh holiness. What she says, what she doesn't say, the way she handles herself, her overall attitude, are all included in behavior. She's respectful of authority. She gives honor to whom honor is due. And I want you to notice, older ladies, he envisions by the Spirit of God younger women watching you and you focusing on younger women to teach them. He says, not false accusers. The word translated false accusers here is powerful. It's diabolos, and it means devil. It's used 38 times in the New Testament. 34 of those times refers to Satan. Slander or false accusation is the work of the devil every single time. Whenever you slander another, you have joined league with the devil. You're taking the devil's hand and doing what the devil does because he's the accuser of the brethren. That's what the Bible says about him. You wonder what the devil's doing? I'll tell you what the devil's doing. He's right now accusing the brethren throughout the world. He's the accuser of the brethren. The word has the idea of hurling slanders, mud-slinging, and it's false accusation. It's gossip. It is, it is attacking the character of another without any evidence or proof. The word implies a verbal assault. A person's life can be literally destroyed by a false accusation forever. And Paul warns the older women to shun any involvement in baseless slander. We're living right now in a thoroughly slanderous culture. Amen. If you want to know if, how, the, how active the devil is in, in a nation or a household or a church or anywhere you go, if you find a bunch of slander, you can know the devil's there. Amen. And look at America. What are we reading and hearing every day on the news? Constant slander that destroys the lives of others, often without any evidence. Just slander. And that's the work of the devil. Amen. There are people who can no longer hold a job, who can no longer return to what they love doing, who no longer want to go out in public because they were accused of something heinous, and whether or not it ended up true, it was out there long enough to ruin their reputation. Amen. So you've got to be very, very careful what you say about others. And if you've ever been slandered, you know nothing hurts worse than to have your reputation sullied by people who never bothered to find out the facts. Now here he goes again, older women ought not be given to much wine. Look how often Paul mentions the sin of intoxication in his letters. Ephesians, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here in Titus already twice. Clearly, it was a common problem in the early church. He wouldn't have had to have uh, addressed it. And again, I just want to say, while the Bible does not categorically forbid the use of wine, it does not. It does state principles like abstaining from activities that would cause a weaker believer to stumble. It's called the weaker brother principle. That there's things we can do, we could do, and, and not sin against God, but if it makes somebody else stumble, I'd rather not do them. Amen. I've told you I don't drink. Um, ever, publicly or privately, here's one of the reasons. We have many people in our church who are struggling to come out of alcoholism, really working to come out of an alcohol problem, and it's a demon. It's an addiction that is just sinister, diabolical, insidious, and I want to be able to say to our church, hey, I don't drink, don't need it. I seek God. I get into the Word. I don't need alcohol to feel good. Matter of fact, for me, alcohol would make me feel bad. Uh, you don't need it. I'm just wanting you to know you don't need it. You don't have to go there. And I want to be able to say to the people struggling in our church with it, your pastor doesn't drink. And so you don't have to worry about uh, that stumbling block being put in front of you by me. And so that's my advice. You can take it or leave it. Um, you pray about it. Chew the meat, spit out the bones. You do whatever God tells you to do. But I want those struggling in our church to be encouraged by leadership that they don't have to go into that sin. Yeah. 
So that's it. Now, uh, teachers of good things. Older women ought to be teachers of good things. The Bible tells the older women to teach younger women first. Now, this is really odd. To love two things that you think they ought to know to love. But first of all, they're to teach younger women to love their husbands. Now, I'm thinking if they're young, they're newlyweds. Why should a younger woman have to be teaching or being taught by an older woman to love their husbands? Because of the attacks that come against marriage. That's why. The word for love here is philandros. And it means tender affection. The vast majority of homes experience various stresses and strains that test the marital bond right off the bat. Money, kids, where you're going to live, money, kids. And did I say money and kids? (laughs) Mainly money at first. And then kids. But there's stresses and strains that immediately start working on that marital bond. So we have to work to keep love preeminent in our relationships. And Paul charges the older women to teach the younger women this valuable lesson. Young ladies, love your man. Love your man. It's so important, folks, to keep love alive in the home. Three simple words, I love you. Just say that with me. Tell me. I need it tonight. Just look right at it. Say, I love you. Three simple words. Now watch. That phrase is so powerful. That little phrase, three words, can calm a stormy day like nothing else. I is the subject. You is the object. And love is the only thing in between. I, you, love. I never talk to my kids that I don't end it by saying I love you. I learn. I'm not getting heavy and I'm not not asking for sympathy. I'm just telling you things I've learned. I learned with the loss of Kathy that you tell the person in your life you love them all the time. And don't ever assume you're going to have a tomorrow to tell them the same thing. Because just like that, things can change. Either immediately, in a sudden accident of some kind, or with a sickness or whatever. And the person that was there for so long is suddenly gone. And one thing you don't want to regret, I didn't tell them enough that I loved them. So just say it. If you don't feel it, remember agape is a choice. Say it anyway. Lie! (laughs) As far as having the emotion. I mean, you may not be feeling it at all. Say it anyway. You don't have to feel it. Say it. Let's try it again. I love you. Some of you haven't told the people around you you love them in too long. (laughs) Fake it till you make it. Right? Just say it. Just say it. And older women are to teach younger women to love their children. How odd. Isn't it interesting that Paul takes older women or tasks older women to teach younger women to do something that ought to be coming naturally. But here's the deal. The truth is that some women weren't loved when they were children. And if you're not taught to break that family curse, you're only going to treat your children the way you were treated. See, I believe when God saves somebody, I don't care who you are, in your family lineage, there are some things moving down that lineage. Ancestrally, ancestrally, your descendants, and some of them are good and some of them are bad. I believe there's something to generational curses. It's interesting to me that, for instance, infidelity can move from a father to a son to a grandson. Alcoholism. Some people who have been raised in it, it's so much easier for them to go to that bottle and get the same habit and it can move down through generations. And I believe that when God saves somebody, he saved you to do a lot of things. He saved you to walk with him. He saved you to witness for him. He saved you for heaven. But I also believe he saved you to take a stand in the middle of your generations. Take a stand in the middle of your generation and say, you know what? 
I'm going to stand in the middle of my generation in the name of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, by the word of God, through, through, through everything that Jesus has given me, the authority of Jesus, the promises of God, and I am going to be the one who breaks these curses in my lineage. I'm going to break them. I'm going to stop it right here. And I'm going to reverse this curse so that blessing now, where there was curses, there's going to be blessing flowing down to my descendants. I really believe that. You don't know how important you are in the bigger picture of your lineage. On both sides of your family, you are very, very important. God cares about your offspring, their offspring, and their offspring. So older women are to teach the younger women to love their children. Now, how to be discreet. That means sensible, self-controlled. Common sense can go a long way in preventing common shortcomings in parenting, like showing favorites. Never do that. Never, never, never. Never show favorites. Overindulging children, over-disciplining them, and so on. How to be discreet. Discreet means you're self-controlled and you're sensible. You know, I think there is a dearth of common sense in America. And here goes my, here goes my, my constant mantra. Political correctness has destroyed common sense. Amen. Common sense is so valuable. <clears throat> and uh, older women are to teach younger women just to utilize common sense and self-control. It's common sense. If you favor one child over another, the one you fa- did not favor is going to really resent the one you favored. Ask Joseph. Jacob gave, gave him the coat of many colors. His brothers resented him so much for that coat, they threw him into a pit, and the first thing they did was take that coat off of him and pour animal blood onto it. They hated that coat because Jacob had shown favoritism. Common sense would have said, Jacob, you may like him more, you may feel a stronger affinity for him, but don't show it and do not show favoritism in front of the other children. Older women have been around long enough to take a young mother aside to impart advice. It'll save them from many tears. And then they'll teach younger women to be chaste, meaning pure, free from carnality. Chastity, folks, has long ago faded from being stylish in our pornographic culture, which is also infected with the feminist movement. It matters so much what you believe. I think it would shock us if we could see what God sees regarding how strongly and how destructively feminist ideology has destroyed the home in America. How destructive that ideology is. The feminist culture has disparaged the idea of a woman. And I'm going to talk about this in just a moment in the next one. But being a keeper at home. Being chaste. The pressure to go the way of a godless culture is powerful. And that's where the influence of older godly women is needed in the lives of younger women. Particularly to be chaste, pure, Wholesome, modest. You can dress classy without dressing trashy. Come on. I was in a mall the other night, and I'm just going down past all these shops, these shops that are geared towards young people. And I just felt like I had to put horse blinders on because of the ads that were in the windows. And, and they were appealing to young women. And the way these models were dressed, or I should say not dressed, uh, is teaching them to be anything but chaste, Amen. anything but modest, yeah. anything but pure. Yeah. And they have no idea what they're doing to these young girls. They're telling them, your, your value is wrapped up in how you look. So if you happen to be heavy or, or, or not what the world would call beautiful, uh, uh, if you didn't get a good roll of the die when it comes to physical features, then you're, you have no value. Or, if, if you don't show off the body that God gave you, you don't have any value. Listen, God values character. Yes. 
Character. Character. Keepers at home. Now we're going where angels fear to tread. The younger, older women are to teach younger women to be keepers at home. The Greek word literally means workers at home. Now, again, the feminist culture of America has disparaged the idea of a woman staying at home to raise children. But the Bible actually applauds it. Now, let me step right in and say, I'm not condemning moms who have to work for financial reasons. Single mothers. Uh, you know, married couples that have to have more income coming in. I get it. But let's return to the Bible ethic. The Bible ethic and advice is for moms to be as present as possible in the lives of their children. And no matter what the culture says or our pressures you to do, we always have to return to what the Bible says, the, the Bible ethic. Because, folks, it doesn't change with generations. It doesn't change with cultures. Bible truth doesn't bow to any culture, any man, any woman, any other ideology. It does not bow. Bible truth remains the same throughout time. It is timeless truth. Do you understand that? It's not truth that you can change based on your whims. You can't. Bible truth is Bible truth. Then he says, teach the younger women to be good. That means good in character. A woman's role is to make her home a refuge from the mean-spirited, callous, cruel, and ungodly culture that the children encounter, and the husband who battles these things at work. The children run into it primarily at school. But here's what he's saying. A good mother, I'm putting that word in good, or in quotes, a good mother, let them learn to be good. It means to be radiant with Christ, filled with God's word, speaking God's love in the home, that's the glory of being a wife and mother. And here's what it provides. A refuge to which to flee at the end of a trying day for the kids and the husband. Amen. 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 Yes. Now we come to the next one. Obedient to their own husbands. And just moving right past that one. <laughs> I, know, I know this is going to be, but I'm going there anyway. I got to. It's, it's in the Bible. Here we go. The word obedient is a military term, meaning to be in subjection. Now, some women immediately say, and here's what I'm always told, you don't know my husband. No, but God does. Amen. And God's bigger than your man. Yes. Now, because of time and space, I, I can't go into this extensively tonight. Um, we would have to be teaching 2 Peter, really, and I'm going to be in 2 Peter soon. But there's a very important balance here, and let me go there. The Bible never calls a wife to submit to excessive or dangerous abuse. Can I say that again? Because there are men who don't understand the Bible who say, well, you know, the Bible tells her to submit to me no matter what. So I can be a total tyrant and cruel and mean and even abusive, but the little lady's got to submit. That is not what God has called her to do. God would never expect a wife to submit to violence. Amen. Never. Matter of fact, if you were to come up to me tonight and tell me your husband was beating you, I would quickly advise you to separate. I wouldn't even have to pray about it because I know how it escalates. And you know what? God would not require you to submit to a husband demanding some kind of sinful behavior. No. There's where you say, I love God and I love you, but I can't go there because I love God. Yes. The Bible tells the husbands in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? Sacrificially. He put the church above his own needs every time. He said, not my will, but thine be done in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified. <clears throat> and unconditionally, with all of her faults and shortcomings, Jesus loves us. Yes. How many of you this week needed to say, Lord, forgive me? I said something, did something, thought something, and, and Lord, forgive me. 
And aren't you glad that he loves you in spite of your imperfections and your faults? But here's the deal. The, the scripture really turns the screw here and says to, to the men, you're going to have to practice agape love with your wives. So if you're not feeling it, you still do it. Even when you're looking at faults and shortcomings, problems, things that bother you, things that turn you off, things that you have issues with, you're going to be long-suffering, gentle, kind, patient with them, just like Jesus is with us. So where he tells the wife to submit, he tells the, let me put it this way, he tells the wives to submit obediently, but the husbands to love them amazingly. Now, if the, if, if the husband is loving amazingly, it's so very easy to submit obediently. Amen. Now I'm going to... Now next, Paul turns to the young men, verses 6 to 8. So we're done with the old folks. Now we're going to the young folks. Verses 6 to 8, likewise exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you, first sober-minded. That simply means self-control to be of a sound, healthy mind. The young men, says Paul, are to take life seriously. That's the idea. You're not to always be silly frivolous, acting stupid, that's for elementary school. But when you start growing up, that's the one thing that I love the Jewish folks do. When they take those those young men who are turning 13 through the, the bar mitzvah, and they say to those young men when they are just turning 13, now you are a man. You don't become a man when you're 18 in the eyes of the law. The Jewish folks have it right there. Amen. And who led them to do that? God did. He, he recognized young, young men as men. Men. Responsible. So he's telling younger men, take life seriously. Don't be a constant cut-up. Yeah. Young David's a great example. When ordered by his father Jesse to take provisions to his older brothers, he was the youngest of the bunch. And he took sack lunches to his older brothers on the battlefield. He heard about the giant, Goliath. He, heard, he saw Israel's predicament, and he heard about the reward being offered to the person who brought the giant down. And David immediately, this youngest of them all, he was about 17 years old, immediately declared, I will fight and I will defeat Goliath. He was very sober-minded. Look at the thinking of this young man. He didn't say, wow, God bless you guys. I'll be praying for you. I'm going back to the flock. He said, no, I take my God very seriously. I take my nation very seriously. And I take God's honor very seriously. And this giant that is mocking God and mocking God's army, you're coming down. And I am going to be the one that does it. That's a sober-minded young man. Sober-minded. I love joking around with the best of them, but there comes a time where it just gets old. You need to get serious some. What are you doing with your life? Where are you going? How are you glorifying God? What has God put his hand on you to do? Time is going by. When are you going to grow up? You are a man. Young men should be, be, uh, show a pattern of good works. The word pattern is from a Greek word meaning type. A type is a living illustration for others to follow. Titus was to be a living pattern, a walking illustration of a young man dedicated to good works. And young men and women today should strive to be living examples, living examples of those zealous for good works that glorify God. And then he said, in doctrine, here's that doctrine again, sound teaching, healthy teaching. In doctrine, young men show integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. What you teach, what comes out of your mouth, let it be reverent, let it be, have integrity, and let it be incorruptible. 
He says, show it, show it, show it. The word for showing means to offer, supply, or to give. And the word integrity means free from taint. So show that the teaching you're following leads you to be pure, free from taint. And godly teaching will always do that. Once again, Paul returns to the subject of doctrine, sound, balanced, healthy teaching. Young men are the ones most vulnerable to being carried away with doctrinal novelties. But older men have arrived with their convictions after years of study, meditation, and discussion. I can tell you we have. So Paul urges young men, hey, get a head start. Get a head start on acquiring sound, healthy, balanced teaching and living. Reverence. Your doctrine, your teaching, your way of living should show reverence. The King James Version translates it gravity. It means dignity. This is talking about having veneration for something worthy of respect, which is God's word or God's authority. Treat it with seriousness as it is the very word of God. If you're a young man walking around showing respect for authority and respect for the word of God, you are shining like a diamond in a night sky. Because this generation that political correctness has created creates the opposite. Disrespect for authority, disrespect for the word of God, selfishness, self-centeredness, narcissism, not the kind of teaching we're reading about right here. Show dignity, show reverence, veneration. And then he says incorruptibility. Sound, healthy doctrine is incorruptible. It's the eternal word of God. That's why the Bible says the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. And then he says young men have sound speech that can't be condemned. The word sound, again, means whole or healthy. This is the fourth use of the word sound. So far in Titus, sound teaching, sound faith, sound love, and now sound speech. So we could say healthy teaching, healthy faith, healthy love, healthy speech. Whole speech, usually used in the New Testament to refer to a healthy body, that word. Young men were to teach healthy, balanced teaching. Young men, young men. I started preaching when I was 18. When this is done, it puts to silence those who seek to find fault with their message. He says, so that one who is an opponent of what you are saying may be ashamed, having nothing, nothing evil to say of you because of the way you're living. I've learned in dealing with lost people, which I try to do regularly, and I would encourage all of you to do that. We're not in a church bubble, amen? God didn't put us in here to insulate ourselves from the culture, but to penetrate the culture and change the culture. And I've learned in dealing with lost people who often argue about the claims of Scripture, they rarely ever know what it really says. They'll quote a verse to me, sort of a half a verse, a chopped up verse, and say, oh, the Bible says, and I say, where do you get that? What version is that? And then I'll say, no, that's not what it says. Here's what it says. And I have found that when I tell them what it actually says, they're often, not always, unfortunately, but often, silence once they hear it laid out. Amen. Because, folks, how can you call a book evil that speaks of loving both enemies and neighbors, of forgiving others, of helping the poor, and of a God who loved you so much he did not withhold his only begotten son? How can you call that book evil unless you're twisting it? I strongly encourage you, engage lost people in conversation. Talk to them about your faith. Reach out to them. What do you think about Jesus? I go to church. Figure out whatever it is you need to open the door of conversation. Do it. You know, I go to church at Turning Point Church. Or uh, where do you go to church? Or do you go to church? Or are you religious? Um, are you a Christian? Do you have faith in anything? And just open the door. And then begin to talk to them. If you hang around this church for very long, 
you are going to learn the Bible to be able to answer them. I promise you that. You make the journey here, I will always make it worth your while. Okay? Let's stand together, can we? Isn't God good? Every older man say amen. Every younger or older lady say amen. Every younger man say amen. Hey, 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 hey. Me too. No. Next week, we're going to talk about you and the workplace. Let's lift our hands to God. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for these incredible instructions, the character qualities, and the callings you have placed on older men, older women, younger men, younger women. Because you care about every person in the church of Jesus Christ. You care about every one of us. Lord, I pray for every older man and woman here that you will give them younger men and women to disciple, to mentor, to teach, to counsel and advise, to share that seasoned wisdom. And I pray that you will give the younger men and younger women ears to hear, a willingness to receive seasoned advice. And Lord, we thank you for it in the mighty name of the Lamb of God.